Would you do it for a Scooby snack? Welcome to another episode of the Unmasked History of Scooby-Doo, the podcast where we delve into the mystery of Scooby-Doo media, getting clues from people who helped bring our favorite mystery-solving dog to life on various platforms, and maybe eating some Scooby snacks along the way. I'm your host, Alexa Lawler. Scooby-Doo, where are you? And it would have been mine if it hadn't been to those meddling kids. Gang, we've just been handed our next mystery. Blasted meddling kids. I can't believe we're at episode 10 already. It seems like these episodes are just flying by. I'm very excited for this one, too, as this week I have Scott Geralds on the podcast. If you're a big Scooby fan, I'm sure you're familiar with the name or have at least heard it at some point. Uh, Scott has been involved with Scooby for many years and also grew up as a fan of the show. He worked on A Pup Named Scooby-Doo and directed early direct-to-video movies Scooby-Doo Legend of the Vampire and Scooby-Doo Monster of Mexico. Scott has also worked on numerous Scooby comic books as well. This episode is also quite a long one, just to warn you of the time commitment it'll take to listen to it in its entirety. So, without further rambling from me, here's my interview with Scott Geralds. Hey Scott, thanks for coming on the show today. My pleasure. Now, if you're up for it, I typically like to start off with a quick three-question trivia game. Okay. So I've taken all of these from the uh, direct-to-video movies that you had worked on. Okay. I know them all too well. Hopefully I know them all too well. Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) So question one. In Scooby-Doo Legend of the Vampire, what is the name of the band that disappeared after they went into Vampire Rock to camp and who were later revealed to be the villains? It was a wild, wild, uh, wild wind. Yes, that is correct. Wild wind, yeah. Bonus points if you can name the uh, the members. Oh, geez, that was that's going to be a t- that's tricky. Um, let me think a second. It's um, oh gosh, they had weird names too. <laughs> they do. I think it was okay because we kind of based them on on. Kiss, obviously. But I think there was one that guy had had a skull, so it was like, it was like Dark Skull or something was one. That is right. Okay. And then we all, they were all different. They they were like, I think the other two were like uh, weather things, like Stormy something and uh, and Lightning something, because he had like a lightning bolt on his face. So was it Lightning? Oh my gosh. I don't, uh, this was like, 2003, so it's like, take me. <laughs> was it lightning strikes? It is, yep. Okay, and stormy, was it stormy weather? Because that's real corny, but was it? Stormy weathers. Stormy weathers, okay. Well, I got close, okay. Very close. I wasn't really sure, yeah, okay. Go ahead. <laughs> and question two uh, What city in Mexico does Scooby Doo the Monster of Mexico take place in? Oh, it's. Uh... He goes to, because the way the guy said it, uh, 
was it Vera Vera Cruz? Yes, it is. Vera Cruz, because the way he said it always, the way, yeah, okay, yes. Because Alejo, that's the way Alejo pronounced it. Vera Cruz, yeah, okay. And question three, which is the last one for the trivia. Uh, who is the gang visiting in Scooby-Doo, the Loch Ness Monster? It's, um, isn't it Daphne's cousin? Yes. Okay. I don't remember her name, though. You know, because I was, I was like co-director on that movie, and I was doing other things while that was being done, even though I got top billing. The, Joe Sitka, who, who wrote it, um, was more the driving force of that one, and I was kind of on to other things and kind of like looking over his shoulder and helping him storyboard stuff and, and making sure things got done. But uh, I wasn't real involved in that one. But uh, but I got credit, so that was a good <laughs> Perfect. Anyway, but yeah, it was Daphne's cousin, but I don't remember her name. I know Sheena Easton did the voice, I think. Or no, was it Sheena Easton? Yeah, I think it was Sheena Easton that did the voice. She was one of the voices in it. Uh, yeah, I don't remember off the top of my head, but her name was Shannon. Shannon, yeah, of course. Yeah, okay. Um, to start off the general questions, what's your relationship to Scooby-Doo? Did you grow up watching? <laughs> well, yeah, it's kind of a kind of a weird story. Um, when I was, right before Scooby premiered, my mom used to read the TV Guide, which was, for those of you under 30, was a, a magazine that we used to get on a weekly basis that would tell us what and when was on television, you know, this, when stuff was on TV. And she was reading the blurb in the back of the, they had these little teletype pages. And she's like, oh, Scotty, you gotta, you gotta listen to this. And she said that um, Hanna-Barbera is planning three new shows for their fall season for CBS. And she said, one is Dastardly Muttley and her Flying Machines. The other one was uh, The Perils of Penelope Pit Stop. And the other one is called Scooby-Doo, Where Are You? And that was all it said. And I'm like, well, I know what Dastardly Muttley is, and I know what Penelope Pit Stop is because I used to watch Wacky Races. that They came off of that. So they got their own spinoff shows. But what's this Scooby-Doo thing? So I had no idea what that was. So about two months later, um, I used to – collect comic books is a, is a, that I'm only like nine years old, not even nine years old yet. And, um, so I'm, I'm pawing through, I'm going, trying to pick out my comic book for the week. And I look out, I look at this, uh, I, I look through this one and they've got an ad for the CBS cartoons that are coming on. It showed Dashley Muttley and their flying machines, Penelope Bitstop, and it showed Scooby-Doo. And they were like these, these four kids and this dog going into this haunted house. And that's all it was. And it was like, it's a mystery show. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, this is going to be amazing. So that was my first introduction to it. And then um, the night before the show premiered, they or the week before the show premiered, they had a preview show where they showed a clip out of it. Um, I think it was like, I don't remember who the hosts were. It was like some sitcom that was on CBS at the time. It might have been Family Affair. But they were a preview in the Saturday morning cartoons that were coming on. And that was my first glimpse of it. So I was just crazy for that. I was like, oh my gosh, this is like, nothing I've ever seen before that Hanna-Barbera had done. And I knew, you know, Hanna-Barbera cartoons pretty well by that point. And uh, this had looked, this looked like nothing they'd ever done before. And it was like a, you know, this mystery adventure with like characters that looked a little more cartoony and a little more realistic. So uh, that uh, just attracted me right away. And then, so I got up the next morning and I watched the thing and it was just, uh, just blew me away. It was just the, the way they put it together. And, uh, and, and it was a whole half hour, too, which most cartoons by the, at that point were only like seven seven or 11-minute segments in a half-hour format. 
So this was the first show done for Saturday morning, I think, that was a full half-hour story, like the primetime shows used to be, like Flint, when they did the Flintstones or Top Cat and the Jetsons, those were all half-hour shows. They weren't segmented. But then Scooby, I think, was the first half-hour show that Hanna-Barbera did for strictly for Saturday morning, like a full half-hour story. And do you have a favorite personal memory related to Scooby-Doo? Uh, it's just, it's always been around. I mean, it's, I, you know, when I was, uh, when I was a kid, um, I used to get, well, I mean, I was, uh, I used to draw them all the time, you know, whenever I could find reference material. So when they put, started putting the comic book out, I remember getting that right away and, uh, just poured over that and drew every image out of that. And then, you know, they released other issues right after that. So, um, and then I got a lot of, I, I there weren't, there weren't that many, there weren't that, that there wasn't that much merchandise back then. There were only like maybe coloring books and comic books and maybe a board game here and there. But they didn't do a whole lot until they did an Easy Show projector, and I think it was the first one that was in color, um, where it had a Scooby Doo uh, film, and it was Hassle in the Castle was the film. I remember getting it and uh, just studied frame every frame of that thing. You know, because you could crank it, you know. Um, and you could control the speed of it, make it go backwards and forwards and everything else. And I would just sit there and just marvel at it because I could actually like sit and watch every frame just to see how it was done. How did you come to work in animation? <laughs> That's kind of a long story too. Um, I knew what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to be an animator from the time I was about five. I had seen a, there were two different things. I had seen a, um, they used to have the Woody Woodpecker show used to be on in the afternoons um, after school. And they had a film, they, they would do these interstitial films where they would show how animation was done. So they would show like how storyboarding was done, how they animated things, how they, you know, um, they did the color and things like that. And I was just so intrigued. I'm like, but my, my dad was an artist. He was a sign painter. Uh, He was a disabled veteran and he painted signs for a living and he drew. And so I kind of picked it up from him, but I took it in a whole different direction from what he did. And then, like I said, after I saw this, um, this film about how animation was done, I went in, I remember my my mom was in the kitchen doing dishes and I'm like, mom, I want to be an animator. And she's just like, you want, you want to what? I said, I want to be an animator. That's what I want to do when I grow up. And she goes, well, they just draw the same thing all the time, every every day, over and over and over. She said, you want to do that? And I said, yeah, that's what I want to do. <laughs> so I, you know, that. and then right after that, the other thing that put me over the top, I was always a crazy Hanna-Barbera fan. I mean, I love that stuff. That's the only place I ever wanted to work was Hanna-Barbera. And uh, they, around 1967, they did this special, um, they did their version of Alice in Wonderland. Which just and and there was a and again in the TV guide there were pictures of the special they had they done an article on it and again it was something else was, I, I could tell it come right from the studio the people at the studio drew it for the article and I just I copied those drawings over and over and over and that really put me over the top and then again going back to Scooby that was the first time that I saw Iwo Takamoto's name on the credits he was production design at that point. And I just like, what a, what a strange name that man has. And I just think well, that must be a neat job to have to be production design. Cause he, I'm assuming he came up with everything. 
And then, you know, lo and behold, you know, what, 16, 17 years later, I'm standing behind him and he's going over my stuff and he's my mentor. So <laughs> that was kind of a weird thing. But uh, a dream come true, I guess, because I, I always admired what he had done. And, and I didn't know what kind of influence he had on me until I actually saw what kind of influence he had on me. So, or, or felt what kind of influence he had on me. If that makes any sense. I don't know. Definitely. And what was the very first animation project that you worked on? Um, I worked for, well, I went to, I went to Cal arts, uh, for two years and I got hired after my second year and I worked at, at Deke, uh, enterprises and the very first animation, uh, the very first series I worked on was get along gang for Deke. And, uh, it's kind of a, one of those, I, I do a lot of these series that are, I call them kind of come and go series where it's like they were on for like maybe one season and nobody remembers it. But uh, those are, I've done a lot of those type of shows in my career. And, uh, but, you know, you learn, you learn something with everyone, you put, you put everything into it. So that was my very first show. And I was hired as a kind of a character designer to kind of wrangle everybody together and get stuff done. But the guy who was the producer on it, he's like, uh, hey, have you ever storyboarded before? And I'm like, no. And he, he, so he gave me a script. He said, try this. And I did like about three pages and gave it to him. He was, he said, you've never done this before. I'm like, no, he goes, well, you're going to do it now. And uh, he was just blown away by how quick I, I caught on to it. Cause I, when I was a kid, I used to sit and draw stories all the time. I would get like a big ream of notebook paper and I would draw like every, every piece of paper would be a, a panel basically. And I would just draw my own little stories as a kid. So I, I guess I kind of trained myself to do that. You know. For those who aren't aware, can you just describe uh, what a storyboard is and what the process is to create one? Yeah, a storyboard is uh, what you'll do is you'll, as a storyboard artist, you get the script and you read through it. And back in the day when I worked at Hanna-Barbera, the writers would actually put um, screen direction in, which I never really paid attention to because I once you get like a flow going, you kind of like have your own, you know, decide to do, you know, close-ups or, or, uh, or wide shots or two shots or whatever. But what you do is you get the script, you read through it. The script has got all the scene uh, direction and the, uh, what the characters are doing and everything and the dialogue and everything. And what you'll do is you'll read that and interpret it and decide, and you're basically doing a comic strip. Uh, it's sort of like scene by scene breakdown drawings of, of everything that's in the script and you play out the dialogue, you play out the action, uh, however many, you know, panels that takes. And then you go, you, you know, that comprises one scene and then you go to another scene. So it's just, it's just a, a sequence, a sequential, sequen sequential drawing of the script is what it is. So it's a breakdown, uh, a visual breakdown. So you can see, uh, you know, the direction of, of what the characters are doing, how the how the the sets are designed, what props you need, um, how the characters are acting, and it's just a it's a blueprint for the layout artists and the animators. And what was it like to go from uh, like watching these shows to working on them? It was crazy because I was from a really really small town in Illinois, right smack in the middle of Illinois, and. Whenever I told people what I wanted to do, they're like, yeah, great. You know, because nobody from a small town, I think we had like, what, 
60, 700 people or something in, in my town. It's a little farm town. And, you know, everybody knew that I could draw and everybody knew what I, I like to do. But, you know, the, the chances of me making it out of that town and, and you know, going to Hollywood and, and, you know, becoming an animator was kind of, I don't know, it was kind of iffy, I guess. Or, you know, people didn't really think that that could happen and just kind of pat me on the head and go, oh, that's good. You have a dream. Um, but yeah, it was, it was really crazy. Just like I said, when I, when I got out here, I used, I, I, I didn't use it, but I, I got hired, I got, uh, accepted at Cal arts. I applied my first year, didn't get accepted. Second year I applied, I got accepted. And, uh, it was so funny. It was like, I, I stepped onto the mothership because there were other people that, that were like me that, you know, that had the same likes and, you know, and, and knew all the stuff that I was talking about. And I'd never met other kids or other people that, you know, knew as much about cartoons as I did or loved them as much as I did. And, um, so it was, it was kind of, kind of a weird experience, like being around those people. So then I was there for two years and, uh, I got married in between my first and second year. So it was like, almost like I have to figure out a way to get hired to survive and put food on the table. And so I did everything I could to get hired. And I, I finally, I got hired right away. And then, like I said, just, uh, it was just real surreal. It happened real fast. The minute I got hired, I didn't look back. And I was employed for over 30 something years after that. So never had a problem. And how did you get the opportunity to work at Hanna-Barbera? Um, I was, I had done freelance for them about two or three years before I actually started working there. And because uh, I was working at Marvel Productions on Muppet Babies and they kind of had a hiatus. And I, they threw me on a couple of shows I wasn't really crazy about. And I heard, I, 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 because I had done freelance over there, I, was, uh, I knew a lot of the people that worked over there, over at Anna Rivera. And um, so uh, I, called, I called up the guy who was uh, in charge of, uh, of hiring for the design department. I asked him if he had any openings. And he's like, yeah, you can start. When can you start, basically? He said, you know, and I hadn't even cleaned my desk out at Marvel yet. So I went to back to Marvel and I told them, I said, I'm, I'm leaving. And uh, they're like, where are you going to go? I'm like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> so, so I left and I, by noon, I was in my desk over at Hanna-Barbera and, and I was, and actually working on development with Iwo Takamoto, who was like my, you know, I had never met him before. I had about five minutes to get ready. And uh, he gave me a, he gave me a, a project that had quick draw, McGraw, Boo Boo Bear, and Huckleberry Hound. And I'm like, oh, I can draw these characters. I've been drawing them since I was like five years old. So I started drawing them and I did this whole presentation. Took it over to him and he's like, well, these would be great if they were on model. And I'm like, wait, what? You know? <laughs> and so he put a piece of paper over it, which he did, and started drawing over the top of them and he showed me how to draw them. And I was like, oh my gosh, what, what have I got to learn here? So, uh, but yeah, and it was kind of the same experience with Joe Barbera too. The first time I met him, I had that same experience where he was, um, I brought some stuff up for him to look at. And he's like, how long have you been doing this? And at that point I said, well, about four years. He goes, well, here's how we're going to do it today. And he he took a piece of paper and put it over the top of it. But, uh, but I learned a lot. I mean, my gosh, the, the I mean, getting to, to be taught by those guys was just, uh, it's amazing. It just, uh, the volume of, of uh, 
of stuff they had to, to show, you know. And if you're willing to learn, they would teach you. So they kind of took me under their wing and showed me everything, which was, was, was really neat. So. And what was the atmosphere like at Hanna-Barbera? It was amazing. Um, the first couple of years, well, the first year I was there, I was just one of the designers. But then uh, I got put in charge of the design department. So I had all the people that I'd worked with. I was now their boss. And we didn't really change the atmosphere. I mean, it was crazy. I mean, we were pulling gags on each other and having, just having a good time. It was it was a lot of fun. Um, you know, we put people in the recycling bins and roll them down the hall and, you know, and people have Nerf guns and shoot them and stuff like that. We did get everything done. And the boss, you know, the, Bill and Joe didn't care as long as we got everything done, you know. So, <laughs> and Jane Barbera, who was my boss, it's like she knew, you know, we were creative when we had to be creative and when, you know, and when we needed to blow off steam, we did. So, but it was, it was really, really, it was such a family atmosphere there. I mean, they really welcomed me in and, and really took care of me and made sure that, uh, you know, that uh, I, I, I kind of got the shepherd and stuff through the way that uh, they saw I, I could do it. So they, they had faith in me. I was only, I think I was only 28 when I was put in charge of that design department. When I look back now, I'm like, oh my gosh, you know. And there were guys that were there like, you know, 30 or 40 years that I was their boss. So it was, it was a little intimidating, but I, I did okay. You know, because I just love this stuff so much. And I, I just wanted to do a good job and make it right. What was it like to work under Bill Hanna and Joe Barbera? Well, they were the one of the biggest reasons I... Uh, wanted to get into animation in the first place. Um, I'd always seen their pictures on the back of like, uh, I think I had a comic book or a, a paperback book or something. I'd always see, you know, TV guide articles with them on it. And I was just like, oh, these guys are great. And uh, and it was just, it was like the biggest thrill to, to have met both of them. And they were both very, very different men. Joe Barbera was very, uh, I guess, old Hollywood. He was, you know, he would he would eat at the finest restaurants. He always had tables that were reserved for him. Um, he was just he dressed great. He he uh, he looked great all the time. He was very uh, he he enjoyed the celebrity part of it. Bill Hanna, on the other hand, was one of those guys that would just roll up his sleeves and jump in and start working with you. I mean, he was like when things were. Um, behind or something he would just jump in and and uh he was very uh very work work oriented you know both of well both of them were i mean they both did their jobs really well joe was always trying to plan what the next thing was and how to get it done and and uh bill was always the the one that had to get it done you know had to figure out the production end of it and and he you know they they employed a lot of people it was like a big it was almost like a big uh it was almost like a big school because it was like, we all kind of like cut our teeth there. And the fact that they let us be a part of it and, and join in and, uh, and, uh, and, and do the stuff that they, you know, that they uh, had sold, you know, was, uh, that was just amazing. The fact that I got to be a part of that was just amazing to me. I mean, you know, again, coming from where I came from and, and dreaming of that my whole life. Um, I mean, the other thing working working Hanna Barbera too, you know, uh, being teamed up with with Iwo Takamoto and him becoming my mentor, 
Um, you know, I mean, he, he started out at Disney and uh, trained under Milt Call, who was the ultimate animator, basically, of the nine old men from Disney. And uh, he will work for him, I think, for probably over 10 years. And then he left Disney and went to Hanna-Barbera and basically gave everything at Hanna-Barbera the look that it has to this day. Um, you know, and Joe, Joe Barbera, like, you know, made Ewo the, the creative producer. So pretty much everything was run past Ewo, you know, to, for him to kind of give his take on everything. But, you know, I mean, Ewo, you know, he created the Scooby characters, you know, he, He's the one that designed all those, and, um, <laughs> and he almost made it to where nobody could draw that dog but him the right way. I mean, he taught me a lot. He taught me a lot of the ins and outs of how to do it, but it's like nobody holds a candle to what, what he did. I mean, because, again, it was his design. Um, but uh, you'd be surprised of how responsible he was. Even for some of the stuff at Disney, he was responsible for the look. Um you know, of, the, of some of the characters, but, uh, but yeah, he designed all the Scooby characters and made them, made them what they are. And, uh, and, uh, he was just a, an amazing draftsman that, uh, and, and he was that way up until, uh, the day he passed, he was, he was just, he was still going over my stuff, you know, up until like the last moment I would ask him for advice and stuff. And, uh, I, I'm, I'm really glad that I had the relationship with him that I did. And with Bill and Joe, too, the relationship I had with them, like I said, they both took me under their wings. It's like the, di the difference between the two of them. When I when I got to be design supervisor, when Jane Barbera, who's Joe's daughter, she was in charge of production, and she put me in charge of design in Hanna-Barbera after I was only there for like a year. And I was only, I think, I was 20, 27, 28 at the time. And uh, the difference between the two of them, she took me around to all the all the guys like to Iwo, and Iwo was very happy that she was doing it. She took me into Joe's office, and Joe's like, "Yeah, we got a couple of uh, guys that uh, that I had uh, that he rehired from the old days." And he goes, "Make sure you keep them busy." And that was his his whole take on it. I was like, "Okay." And then I went in because I asked Joe, I said, is there anything you want me to do? He goes, well, yeah, keep these guys busy and make sure you give them, you know, all the stuff that they need. And then when I went into Bill's office, you know, I, I said, well, is there anything that I need to do that you, you know, you want me to do? Because, again, I was more on the production end of it, you know. And he's like, he said, well, why don't you let me take you out to lunch and we'll talk about it. And I was like, really? You know, so we went out to lunch and he took me to this uh there was this place he always went to it was like a, an old lady's home is what they called it. But it, they had lunch there and he was tipping the guy who brought the water and just, you know, he was really, and he let me ask all the questions that I wanted to ask since I was like eight years old. And, uh, and he was a little taken back by the fact that I was so enamored with him. I mean, the fact that he was responsible, one of the people responsible for me getting into the business and he just, you know, he kind of didn't, couldn't grasp that sort of, but, uh, you know, and we both found out that, you know, he'd had heart problems. I had, you know, a little bit of a heart condition too. I had high cholesterol and he gave me, uh, <laughs> he gave me a recipe for this bean casserole thing that he said, Oh, this will bring your numbers down. I'm like, okay, that's great. So he was very, very sweet. Just, uh, just a real gentle guy. You know, I mean, he, back in the day, I guess he, 
you know, he was kind of hard nosed as far as getting stuff done. But as long as you got your stuff done, they were both great. And as long as you did your job and, and you were passionate about it, they were they were amazing to work for. And the fact that they, like I said, they both kind of took me under their wing and and made sure that uh, I felt very welcome there and uh, you know very secure in my job and, and what I did and how I did it. And do you have any fun or interesting stories that stick out in your mind from working at Hanna-Barbera? Oh gosh, I could write a book. Um, yeah, there was, I mean, every, gosh, just uh, being, being in Bill Hanna's office and him trying to teach me how to do timing on sheets, uh, all my meetings with Joe Barbera, uh, the, the relationship I had with Iwo Takamoto, it started off very teacher-student-like. It was a very teacher-student relationship. And uh, and I like I said, there were some days where I stood behind him for eight hours and watched him go over stuff that we had designed and, and, and to make sure everything was right. But it was so funny. It's like when Iwo and I both ended up at Warner Brothers – we became really close friends and that teacher student thing was, that was gone and we were just buddies hanging out. And I would tell him all the stories about, he used to torture me by making me stand behind him for eight hours a day. And he just, he got a kick out of that. He just said, well, I had it. Good. I'm glad I had an impact on him. I said, my God, yes, you did. It was, uh, it was, uh, it was interesting, but he, yeah, he turned out to be, like I say, he was my mentor. He was my really good friend. And I'm glad that that our that our relationship evolved into that. And the the thirteen ghosts of Scooby Doo was the first Scooby project that you worked on. Is that right? Yeah, I did. Uh, I was doing. I did freelance storyboards on that, and I did about five episodes of it. Okay, what was it like to work on that show? Um, well, it was. I it, again, it was one of those where I just kind of went over and met with the producers. I was just looking for free. I was just looking for a freelance gig. And what happened, somebody had, I had gotten the Bible that they had written for it to show what the show was going to be. And it had such a dark edge to it. And I'm like, my gosh, there's nothing like this has ever been done before. And uh, I just love the way it was written and the way that the characters all interacted. And the fact that they brought Vincent Price in, they had this flim flam character and, you know, Scrappy was in it. And they had done a makeover on Daphne and they gave him a new van and then, you know, and, and, uh, and they had an airplane and it was just, I, it just, it was like nothing I'd ever read before. So I called up right away to see if I could do, um, freelance on it. And I met with the uh, producers and they were like, I think, I think that the fact that I was working on Muppet Babies kind of opened up some doors for me. Cause that was like a really highly respected show. And whenever I would call up and I'd tell them I was working on that, they're like, Oh, well, you know what you're doing. So, you know, that we'll give you work. And, um, yeah, so my very first, my very first storyboard job for Hanna-Barbera was on Scooby. And do you remember when that show was canceled at all? Do you know what happened with that? Um, no, I don't. I, I don't, because usually, because I wasn't there, I mean, I wasn't there full time, um, by the time that they finished that show. Um, I don't know why it only went one season. I, because usually there's... Because I, I know how on, when we did about Scooby, there was a reason that we only got so many episodes per season and all of a sudden they decided to cancel it. And it may have been the same uh, thing for, for 13 Ghosts. I don't know. There might have been something else that they had to negotiate or they had another show that they wanted to 
put on their on their uh, schedule, and you know maybe uh, thirteen goals wasn't performing as well as they wanted it to or something. I don't know. And what were your thoughts on the added characters? Because I I feel like you know Flim Flam and Scrappy especially are kind of either universally loved or hated. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it's it's no different on uh, where Flim Flam is concerned. It was it was no different than the Hanna-Barbera of, of old or, 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 you know, whatever, however they were, they were always pulling from whatever the pop culture thing was at the time. So, you know, Indiana Jones came out with the short round character. So it's like, okay, let's have a character like that on our show. And then I know the producer was a huge, uh, universal and, uh, hammer film, fan and that's why he wanted Vincent Price on it and Vincent Price was Vincent Price was like he was almost like everybody's grandpa he was kind of like he just he was a very gentle man but uh yeah but but I know the producer really you know was a big fan of those old horror movies so that's why they got Vincent Price in it um and I thought it was a pretty good addition I just love the the, the makeover of, of Daphne and, and Shaggy um you know Scrappy Either like you said, you either love or hate Scrappy. I I didn't have a problem with. It. I've never had a problem with Scrappy, but uh, but yeah. So it it was like I said when I read the the Bible on the show, it was just the way the show came together. It was like wow, this and it was real ghosts too, which was kind of a a novelty at the time until we did um, Zombie Island, and that was the other time where we started doing you know real monsters and stuff. And I because I, I storyboarded on that too, but. Uh, but yeah, it was just the premise was the premise was um, was different, and it was just kind of breathing breathing new life into into Scooby that it kind of needed at that point. And what was your role on a pup named Scooby Doo? I was I was working on developing a junior version of all the Yogi Bear characters at that point, which we eventually did, which evolved into something I don't even want to go into, but. Um, uh, I was working on a version of that, and then uh, the head of development came in at one point and said, oh, the Yogi Project's dead, but we're going to go ahead with the pup named Scooby-Doo. We're going to go ahead with the Scooby-Doo kid version. Uh, and somebody else was working on that at, the point, at that point. So Iwo said, well, I'll put you on that now. And I started doing development on, on that. And... Um, working with the uh with the producers and stuff on that um i just i went over i had to go over and tell them like okay i'm, I'm on this now and i uh we did all the development and um got it all worked out again that was one of those you know standing behind evo for eight hours a day and having them go over all my poses of the characters and uh making them what they needed to be and then i storyboarded the first episode and I wasn't in charge of the department yet. I was still just a designer. So I storyboarded the first episode and I was in charge of design on the show. So I had a crew of like five or six guys and we did all, did the, we did all the character designs for that. And then I didn't really do any more storyboards on Pup Scooby until the second season. And another producer, Lane Riker, took over. And um, he and I really kind of like we kind of revamped the show a little bit as far as the design go, goes and made it and made it more cartoony because it was weird when we first started designing it. I thought 
well, even though these characters are more cartoony, they'll fit into the Scooby world because I didn't realize that it was going to be as cartoony as it was at first. And then after I started storyboarding, I'm like, oh, we really need to push this thing. So we started doing all these crazy take, you know, Tex Avery type takes and uh, and stuff like that. And, and, and it was, you know, it, it just kind of evolved into a wackier version of, you know, of, of, again, it was reinventing the franchise to something that had never been done before. And can you describe what the development process was like for a pup named Scooby-Doo? Well, like I said, I, um, we, it, it just got more cartoony as we went, went along. Um, and the scripts were getting a little more, you know, great. It, it, we, like I said, we started out kind of doing it straight and then it, it started veering into this, like the producer really wanted to make it cartoony. And, uh, so that's the direction we went. And, I think in the second, the second season, like I said, when Lane and I kind of got a hold of it, it, it got a lot more, it got a lot more cartoony. It got, you know, we simplified the designs of all the supporting characters and stuff too. Um, you know, like all the ghosts and everything, we just made it more cartoony. He and I had kind of the same sensibilities as far as the direction of the show went. And what was your favorite thing about A Pup Named Scooby-Doo? I, I love storyboarding it. I storyboarded, gosh, how many of those? I uh, I did, like I said, I did the first episode, and then in the second season, I think I did maybe five out of the, I, I think we only got ten that, that season, I think. And then I, I, uh, I got to... Uh, the last season it was on, we did like four episodes, but I got to produce those because nobody was left that worked on the show. Everybody had gone on to other projects or, you know, and there was nobody left. So they're like, well, Scott knows the show. And ABC, I had a really good relationship with the uh, execs at ABC and they really liked my storyboards a lot. So they're like, well, let Scott produce them. And that's while I was doing my design job or my design supervisor job too. So I produced the last, uh, and I even got to co- co-write one of them like a little sh- a three minute short that we did. So, um, but yeah, that, those are some fond memories of that. Just, just being able to, I mean, I just, I loved, I loved storyboarding and whenever that was the only show I can remember storyboarding and never feeling like I should be done yet. It was like, it just, it just came so natural and it was so easy for me to do. And then I'd be done with it before I, you know, realized that I was done with it. It was just, um, it, it was probably one of the most natural feeling storyboard jobs I've ever done on anything. Um, Cause I was so tuned into the way that the character should act and, and, uh, and, and do takes and react and everything. And, and it was just kind of second nature. It really felt good on that one. And I designed, had designed a lot of stuff for it too. So it was really easy just to kind of fall, fall into that. And was it a lot of juggling to do the producing and the design supervising and everything else that you were doing on that last season? Yeah, but I was kind of doing, I mean, the design supervisor job took in, we did publicity stuff. We helped that department out. Um, And then, you know, we, (laughs) we had a ton of shows rolling through there at that point too. So it was like, I, I had, you know, I had about 30 or 40 people in the department that were, you know, I could assign like, you know, uh, different shows to based on their strengths. 
and uh, it all worked out. Everybody, everybody got their stuff done, and that's all that mattered. So I, I had a little bit of time to, I mean, there was a lot of times where I would take stuff home at night, you know, and uh, and 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 finish it up for the next day if it needed. If I if I fell behind a little bit, but no, I, I never really had a. It, it wasn't it wasn't that hard. I, I would again. I was I loved what I was doing, and I loved the place I was at, and I would do have done anything for that studio at that point. So it, uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was pretty, I'm not saying it was easy, but it was just, didn't feel like work. I had a good time. And uh, working at a studio that is producing a lot of shows, would you normally be working on like just one of the various shows that they were working on at that time? Or would you work, have a hand in a couple of them? Well, we, I would do development. I'd be in on development on everything and, and work on it all out. With, uh, with Ewo or, um, and then after um, a certain point, there was another, uh, there was a CEO that came in and he made me in charge of development too. So I was doing development, publicity, and then taking the shows from development into production at that point too. So I would usually, <laughs> I picked the shows that I felt more comfortable with or the ones that I had more to do with in development. You know, so I kind of had my my choice. And Pub Scooby, it's like I could never let anybody else do. <laughs> so I don't know why. But I did. There were a lot of shows like I I was kind of heavy handed in, and would uh, help out on design or or I'd oversee it just to make sure that it was being treated the right way. And especially it was something I was more attracted to. Being able to work on Scooby Projects for Hanna-Barbera and then moving to work on Scooby Projects for Warner Brothers, uh, what were the differences between working at both places? Um, well, like I said, Hanna-Barbera was more of a family. Um, Warner Brothers, I never really felt that way about. I mean, it was so funny because when I went to Warner Brothers, I left Hanna-Barbera to go to MGM because a lot of the guys that I worked with at Hanna-Barbera went to MGM and they were kind of switching uh, owners at that point because Turner Turner was, was buying Hanna-Barbera. I didn't really kind of see eye to eye with a lot of the stuff that they were going to do. So I decided to leave. And so I went to MGM for a couple of years. And then after that, I went to Warner Brothers. And um, the guy who produced uh, 13 Ghosts and Pup Scooby hired me at Warner Brothers and I was there for about 12 years, but it was funny while I was there, um, Warner Brothers bought Hanna-Barbera. So those characters kind of followed me to Warner Brothers, <laughs> which was kind of odd. So it was like, you know, uh, Hey, we're going to be doing Scooby-Doo again. You know, I'm like, would you like to work on it? I'm like, are you really, you know? So yeah, cause there, there was a little bit of a mix up there at one point because um, I think Cartoon Network was doing some Hanna-Barbera properties and, and uh, so the, it was kind of like up in the air, like who's going to actually do this stuff? And so, you know, Scooby landed at Warner Brothers. And uh, it, the, the difference was, like I said, Hanna-Barbera was more of a family. Uh, Warner Brothers always felt a little more corporate. And uh, it was just, uh, it was just a whole different atmosphere. I can't even explain it. It was just a little more, um, regimented i guess i don't i don't even know what the word is so and what was it like to be able to take on some scooby projects again oh it was amazing i i couldn't wait in fact um first thing i did when when they gave me the the um uh, 
the DVD, the, the I guess um, the people in development decided that you know they knew that I knew those characters really well, so they were looking for a new producer for the DVDs, and they came to me and said, "We're going to do a DVD, and would you like to do it?" And the first thing I did was run into Ewell's office and said, "Guess what we're doing?" And <laughs> I got him really involved in it. So he and I sat in my office across my desk. He would sit on one side and I'd sit on the other. We were pouring over the script, you know, adding gags to it. And, and we can plus it here. We can make this work here. And my biggest, my biggest thing was, and I really kind of had to fight for this, was to get the original voice cast back together. And that was something that I was a dream of mine. I wanted to make it, I wanted to make it that 1969 show that I saw when I was nine years old. And uh, so I, uh, at that point, all the, all the voice casts except for Frank Welker were not there anymore. They weren't doing anything. In fact, the girl who did, uh, the lady who did uh, Velma's voice, Nicole Jaffe, hadn't done Velma since like 1972 after Scooby-Doo movies. So, um, <laughs> so I went and got them all back together. I went to Casey Kasem's house because he uh, had not, and I, went, I gave him the script. I went over it with him to make sure that he was okay with everything because I called him up and I'm like, I'd really like to go over this with you to make sure you're okay with everything in it. And he really appreciated that. And then I met, and then Frank Welker actually auditioned for me to do Scooby's voice. So I'm like, I called him up. I said, Frank, you didn't have to audition. <laughs> he sent me a cassette tape. I'm like, Frank, you really didn't have to audition. You just need to let me know that you wanted to do it. So we had Frank take over Scooby and he did Freddie. And then I went and got uh, Heather North to do Daphne. And like I said, the trickiest one was getting Nicole Jaffe back. She was an agent, um, uh, a talent agent. And so I called her agency and we talked to her on the phone for a while. We convinced her to do it. And she had to, uh, she gave her salary back to the actors union or something like that, because she didn't feel right, you know, being an agent and taking away a job from, you know, one of her clients basically. But, uh, but it was so neat when I got them all in the room together. I just, I lost my mind. It was like, I was nine years old again. And I actually got to see all four of them, except for Don Mezik, you know, God bless him. Uh, he wasn't around anymore, but to have Frank do Scooby, and uh, and do it justice, and and it was just, it was really overwhelming. I mean, I just I about lost it, you know, a couple of times because it was I was so happy that they could all do the voices and still do it, and yeah, because I was really worried about Nicole because she hadn't done it for, you know, like I said, since like for since nineteen seventy two, and uh, so we we she got actually she came in and did it by herself the first time, and then after that I got all four of them in the room together and and watched them all act together and bounce off one another and it was amazing so um yeah that was my that was again doing the dvds and then you know i got to do a couple of those with the original cast and then after that i think we went to they used the uh, what's new scooby-doo cast after that so for the other dvds that followed and you mentioned having to fight for the original voice cast uh what were the politics around that do you remember the fact that they were too old and they didn't want to, and a lot of the people really didn't want to go back to as much as I did, didn't want to go back to the original show. They're just like, Oh, we want to make this thing more modern. And, you know, and uh, they, they just weren't, I mean, the, the, a lot of the executives 
weren't real thrilled about it. And I really had to do a lot of convincing. And uh, so they just finally gave in because they saw how passionate I was about it. And I, like I said, I only got to do two with them that way. But that was fine. You know, I mean, I was, I was really proud of, the, of, of both of them and the way they turned out. And the fact that we really made it, I think we made it as close. And I went back and got the original music. I know you had Rich Dickerson on. And we had him do, uh, I, <laughs> I actually brought all the old Scooby-Doo music cues and sat with him and just said, I want this one here. I want this one here. And he had to rescore everything because, you know, the, uh, because of the rights issues and stuff. But he, you know, he made it, he, he did those scores, but he, you know, he re-recorded them and made it all sound like, like as much like the original as he, as he possibly could. I was really, really proud of those two, two films that I did. And were the executives happy in the end with the with the results of getting the original cast back? Well, I kind of a that's a good question because after that we did what's new Scooby Doo, and I thought and I worked really hard to show them that I was the guy to do Scooby, and then they brought in another producer to do what's new Scooby Doo the series, and they made me supervising director, which meant I had to help the producer because he had never done a Saturday morning series before. So I had to help him figure that out. And then I had a whole crew of directors that they brought in. There were four different guys that I had to like supervise all their storyboards. So I was kind of like the go between, between the producer and the directors and making sure everything got done the way it needed to go get done. And then, um, so, yeah, so I didn't get to produce the, the What's New Scooby-Doo. So that was kind of their way of saying, well, we let you have that, but we're not going to let you have this. You know, so I was like, okay. You know, and that's the way, that's, you know, that's showbiz. That's the way it works, you know. After the first season, they said, okay, the producer knows what he's doing now, so we're not going to have you be supervising director anymore because he's okay. I was like, okay. So they put me down to director. And... Um, they made me a director and they, you know, uh, so I, I, I just went ahead with that. And episodically, I got to do the Christmas episode, which they used to show every year, which was kind of cool. Because um, it was the Scooby, the evergreen Scooby-Doo Christmas episode that they, like I said, they would show all the time. And then um, I directed, I was supposed to have directed four episodes. I only got to direct one and then they pulled me off to do. I think at the Tom and Jerry directed video. Oh no, I was doing, I was doing crypto, crypto, the super dog at that point. So, um, but I was supposed to have directed the episode with simple plan and the episode with kiss in the second season. So I still got to go down to the recordings and hang out and oversee those even after, even though I was on another series. So that, that was neat. And, you know, uh, design wise, I didn't, you know, Again, I just basically oversaw the design. I would go over things if I thought that they were kind of straying away from what we needed. But um, as far as, you know, the, the, the episodes I remember really, really enjoying doing was the Christmas one. And then the one with Simple Plan and the one with, uh, with Kiss was a lot of fun. And what is it like to be in the room watching the voice cast uh, recording the lines? Oh, it was amazing. In fact, on What's New Scooby-Doo, um, they were looking for uh, for new for a new uh, actress to do to do Velma because Nicole Jaffe, obviously, she was done. She wasn't going to do it. And there was one night I was working at home 
and my kids had on, I think it was a reunion movie, a, a, a Facts of Life reunion movie. And I was, I wasn't even watching it. I just, I just was just listening to it and I was drawn and all of a sudden Mindy Cohn like started talking. I'm like, she could be Velma. That would, that's perfect. She's perfect. So we got a hold of her. And even before the network approved it, we brought Mindy Cohen in the, the, for the first recording. And they're like, well, we don't know if we, the, the network was like, we don't know if we really want her or not. And then the minute she started, they were like, fine with it. But that, that was a little bit of a risk that, uh, and I was, you know, again, I got, I got Frank Wolver to do Scooby-Doo and I got Mindy Cohen to do Velma. And I got Nicole Jaffe to do Velma again. I got the other North to do Daphne again. I got Casey Kasem back. So, I mean, that was like, um, it's so funny when I was a kid, it's like, and I, you know, I just said the whole thing about listening to stuff. I would, I would take cartoons on my cassette recorder. Cause that was days before VHS and, and, you know, any way of videotaping anything. And I would, I would sit and draw and I would turn the, you know, I turned the tapes on, I'd listen to the tapes. And even when, you know, I'm working now, it's like, I don't really watch TV. I listen to TV. So I'm really tuned into how a cartoon should sound. So when I, again, when I did the DVDs and uh, I had a certain way that I wanted all the old sound effects, I wanted all the old music, I wanted all the old voices, I wanted it to sound like the cartoon that I grew up on. And so I was a little more tuned into that. And the thing is, like when they, we were, like I said, when we were looking for Velma, for her, for her voice, for a replacement for Velma, like I said, the, I heard Mindy Cohen, I didn't really see her, I heard her. And I was like, oh, that's it right there. She could be perfect. And she spent a lot of years being Belma, you know, on the on the other on the What's New series and everything after that for a while. And what was it like to be able to have a huge part in that decision of casting Mindy Cohn? Um, I don't know that I got any credit for it. <laughs> I don't think I did because it was just like, uh, it, it, all of a sudden, you know, after she worked out, it became, you know, it became everybody else's find so i just kind of you know again that show business <laughs> you know you just kind of step back and let it all happen where it needs to as long as it, as long as it comes out the way it should you know it's, it's not a problem and out of the movies that you had worked on do you have a favorite at all oh wow um probably legend of the vampire i like it i you know it's so funny i like parts of 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 both of the ones I did. Um, I think Vampire probably had a weak ending and uh, Monster Mexico, the Chupacabra was not a true Chupacabra. It was a, we made it a Bigfoot, which was kind of, we got a lot of flack for that. Um, you know, from, from just fans saying, well, this isn't a true Chupacabra. I'm like, okay, I know that which is so funny because I ended up doing a, a show called secret Saturdays later on, which is nothing but uh, those type of creatures were <laughs> like the main focus of the show. So I knew all those creatures, you know, the way they're supposed to be. But, um, but yeah, there were parts of, there were definitely parts of both films that I really like. I really captured it here. This was a little bit weak. I mean, I, again, I'm, it's the worst. I'm, I'm the worst uh, judge of that because it's like, I'm so, tied into certain aspects of it. And I just want it all to be good. And there's parts that I think work better than other. I mean, watching both of them to this day, I still find like, ah, I should have done this, should have done that. 
Um, in fact, in on on um, Vampire Rock, my main gripe was I was so busy trying to get the original cast back together that the incidental characters, I was like, the only thing I really kind of wanted was I wanted Mickey Dolenz to do, um, to be the, the manager of Wild Wind. I wanted him to voice that because I thought he would have been perfect. And he was busy at the time, and that was really kind of disappointing. Um, but uh, but like I said, there's there's parts of it, parts of the movies that work better than others, and I, that's you know that's that's the thing. Like I said, as a director, producer, and director, you're always looking back at it, going, "You should have done this. You should have done that." And were there any challenges working on Scooby at all? No, I not really. I I mean I you know I mean I was pretty comfortable with that character. Um, and having been trained by Ewo on how to draw the characters the right way, and, and there, there's really not any any poses that I can't do with those characters. I mean, I kind of keep going back to the ones that, you know, we did when we were developing the style guide and everything. So, <laughs> I mean, and those are the poses that I think show up in everybody else's work. Like, whenever they do comics now, it's like guys just kind of cut and paste those poses. Like, Here's Scooby running up, and then they'll they'll put him upside down like he's flying through the air. But it's like a Scooby running pose. I'm like, wait, that doesn't work. Wait, you know. So it's kind of funny to see all that stuff. Uh, you know, somebody else using the stuff that you've done. Moving more towards the comics that you had worked on for Scooby, how did you become involved in those? Um, I got to the point where, well, I had, <laughs> I had uh, when we. When I was at Hanna Barbera in the publicity department, we did all the comic book covers. I think when Archie, Archie Comics and Harvey Comics both, um, all those went through us. So we did all those. And then when DC got the property, because Warner Brothers owns DC, um, I think I just that was like back in like I think the first one I did was like two thousand eight, maybe. Or was it? I don't know. I don't remember. It might have been earlier than that. Um, I don't really remember what year that was. But uh, I just I got a hold of the editor's name that was doing the, the book, and I asked if I could, you know, I told them who I was, and they were like, oh, okay, yeah, you could do this. So I did one, and then I, it, there went for a, a while before I got another one, and then I, they, they switched... DC switches editors like every six months on Scooby for some reason. And so you almost have to kind of like reintroduce yourself every time, even though they have you on a list and I'm a, you know, I'm an approved Warner brothers artist, you know, for those characters, for all the Hanna-Barbera stuff and for Scooby and all that stuff. But uh, it's kind of tricky keeping your name in the pot for the comic books. That's the only, that's the only downside of it. Um, there, those are a lot of work. The thing that I enjoyed for the that, that I enjoyed with the comic books the most was doing those team up ones. Um, I did a, the Scooby Doo team up book, which they, they canceled after fifty issues, but I did a pretty pretty good handful of those. But <laughs> it was so cool. I got to do Scooby Doo teaming up with Dasherly Muttley and their flying machines and Perils of Penelope Pit Stop. So those those three shows again, full circle, going back to nineteen sixty nine. Those three shows came back to me at that point, and I got to actually draw those characters together um, in two different books. So that was kind of cool. 
So it all came, it all again, it all came full circle, came back around to uh, those three shows that my mom told me about reading out of the TV guide. I got to draw them, you know, like what, 30 something years later. <laughs> so That's amazing. Yeah. Um, and can you speak to the development process for the Scooby comics? Um, those are all figured out. Uh, by the time I get it, the scripts are done and, uh, they give me the script. I, I, you know, just, uh, usually they're, well, the Scooby-Doo team up books were 20 pages. The regular stories at Scooby-Doo, where are you are, were 10 or 10, 10 pages. So they give me the script. I break it down, do my layouts. I usually, because I work on, uh, I work digitally on a computer. Um, I just, I do it really clean and send it in. So I don't have to, I mean, back in the day when I used to, when I used to draw on paper, uh, they, I, I would, you know, do my, do my roughs and then, uh, and then send them in and get them approved and then I'd ink it or somebody else would ink it. Um, then after, after I send my, my, uh, line drawings in, then they, they put the, the, uh, lettering and the coloring in, and then they send me back the proofs to make sure everything works um, with what, what I, my intent was. And um, yeah, so that's, that's pretty much it. It's, it's pretty cut and dry, you know, cause they've, you know, that's the way they've done it forever. So, I mean, I got, it got to the point, like I said, it was really nice after I stopped drawing them on Bristol board and on paper basically, and, and did it digitally. It was like, it was nice just to do it one time because when I would, draw them on paper, it would like, I'd have to do it like two or three times before, you know, I'd have to rough it out, send it to them, get it approved, then get it back and then ink it and then send it to them, get it approved. And then, you know, so I would be doing it twice and I would draw, I drew, I draw really, really tight anyway. So it was kind of a, a hassle to have to go back over something I'd already done. So that's the, that's the upside now working digitally. I can just, you know, I just do it one time and send it to them. And if they have any, any revisions that I just, you know, everything's on layers and I can take that panel out and rework it and put it back in. And was it a bit of a process to transition to digital from paper or was that a fairly <laughs> easy? No, not for me. It wasn't. It was, it took me, I fought it for a long time, but it's like, if I want to keep working, I have to learn how to do this. And it, I want to say it was probably a good year before I got real comfortable with with drawing that way. In fact, I still, because of the way that my posture is now compared to the way I used to draw on a desk with paper, it's really works out different muscles that I didn't know I had <laughs> so, being in a different position. And the way I do stuff on my tablet is that I usually move my arm around and go to and click on different levels or different aspects or, you know, like to blow something up or to, reduce it or whatever and I'm constantly moving whereas you know when I did it on paper I was just in one position and I'd be, be over the top of it here it's like I'm not that way it's kind of like a little more slanted and uh it, like I said it's a whole different whole different posture which uh hasn't agreed with me in my in my later years <laughs> <So>. <laughs> that was that's the hardest part in fact I'm fighting that every day now where it's like I after I can't I can't sit for five or six hours now without without like standing up and stretching and being really sore. So 
Um, and more generally, uh, what do you consider career highlights from your work on Scooby-Doo? Well, working with Ewo is probably the biggest one. Um, and having him, you know, like, like I said, starting out as very, you know, teacher student relationship and then evolving into just really good friends and, uh, and him still, you know, up to the, his last days, he was going over my stuff and showing me how to draw. And, uh, that was probably, and working with Bill and Joe, I mean, working with people that I grew up seeing their name on, on, on the credits was just amazing to me. And, uh, I'd be pretty awestruck, you know, or starstruck, I guess. And, um, those were the highlights of actually having them sit down and show me how to do stuff and learning from them. And I kind of feel sorry for, for, uh, the people, you know, the, the younger people now that they're in the business cause they don't have anybody like that, that they can go to that, that, you know, came out of that era. Um, one of the biggest highlights that we had when, uh, when doing pup named Scooby-Doo was we actually had Bill Hanna time our first episode it was so funny. There's a little story behind it. Um, I was standing in the doorway talking to the producer and Bill Hanna walks by and he's like, Hey, I saw that storyboard that you guys did on the, your uh, pub named Scooby-Doo episode. And he said, are they, are they really going to let you do all those wild takes that we used to do? And, and the producer's like, yeah, we get to do that. And he's like, well, that's great. And uh, he said, just keep it up. And then he, walks off he goes in the elevator and goes up and then i turned to the producer and i said you know it would be great uh, uh if we got bill Hanna to time the first episode because we were trying to think of who's going to do it and the next thing i knew the producer runs up to, <laughs> to bill Hanna's office and convinces him to do it because he hadn't timed anything in quite a while and uh so a few days went by and again, I'm, I'm in the producer's office and we're talking over things. And uh, Bill Hanna comes by with the, with the storyboard and he goes, <laughs> he just finished doing it. He goes, this thing moves like a house on fire. And he was really, uh, really pretty happy, I guess, with what he did. And it was just, and, and really everything hit exactly where it should. It was, it was uh, some of the best timing I've ever seen on anything. I mean, everything hit exactly where where it needed to. And he understood all the gags. And I mean, why wouldn't he? I mean, he's, he's the one that started all that stuff, but it was amazing. It was really, really a joy to have him involved in it. And, uh, and the fact that he really enjoyed what he did, he did you know, doing it too. So that was great. Um, and for those that maybe don't know, can you describe uh, what timing is and what the purpose of it is? Uh, yeah, the timing is, uh, what they do is they take the, the soundtrack and the storyboard and everything is like, um, they have to set everything down onto a, a timing sheet. So they have to show where, uh, how long, how many frames dialogue takes to say, and then, uh, the action that happens in between, um, they have to, you know, just, it's basically breaking down the frame count. Uh, so how many frames, so that the animators know, you know, how, how, what the exposures are. So the cameraman knows what the exposures are for each drawing and everything. So, uh, yeah, it's not, it's not a fun thing to do. It's not something I've ever done 
or I'd like to, I've done it. I mean, I've gone over sheets and, and, uh, and corrected stuff and made sure stuff hits, but it's, it's too much like math for me. And I draw for a living. So I just, uh, <laughs> it was, it's not a fun thing for me to, to do. I mean, like I said, I've, I've gone over many sheets in my day and, and corrected stuff and, uh, figured out where things hit, but it says for me, and, and it's so funny, like when, um, Bill Hanna had me up to his office one time and he timed with a, usually you time with a stopwatch and you, you know, you just kind of figure out, you know, where, uh, how long things take and everything. But Bill Hanna timed with a metronome and it was a real musical beat thing to him. So he would speed the metronome up and, and slow it down whenever there were certain actions. And he would just kind of physically act the action out while he was timing it to see how long it took him, you know, how many seconds it took him to do it. So, but again, it was like, yeah, I don't know. It was like, you know, Greek to me. Like, you know, I, I, I had no idea. I mean, he, he showed me, I don't know how many times. It, he didn't get frustrated. It was just, I just didn't pick it up. And it was like, again, like when I was in math class in high school, I just, I'd sit there and I'd just be like, you know, I'd just be a, you know, blank, uh, not being able to pick up on it. And it was just kind of a, maybe a learning disability. I don't know. But, uh, but like I said, I, I figured out my own way to like go over sheets and figure out uh, timing and, and uh, you know, and, and see where things hit and, and, you know, figure out dialogue and stuff like that. So I, I, I was, as a producer director, I was able to go over uh, stuff and look at it and make sure that things hit exactly where they needed to or if they were too fast or too slow. And when it comes to Scooby specifically, uh, what was it like to work on so many vastly different Scooby projects? Well, I, I think it was it was kind of neat because uh, every time we did it, the the franchise was kind of reinvented. Um, you know, like Thirteen Ghosts, like I said, it was like nothing I'd ever read before, and it was not a version of Scooby that had ever been done before. Pup Scooby again, whole different version. Um, then when we did the when I did the first direct to video, when I did, uh, I, I just storyboarded on it. And uh, it was real ghosts. That was a whole different reinvention of it. And then when I did the second, I did the Alien Invaders. I did. I got to do the the How Groovy song sequence. I storyboarded that um, in that episode. But every time I worked on Scooby, it was different. I mean, even when I took when I did the direct videos, it was uh, you know I got to put I got to make that 1969 show again. You know, so I did, I did that. But when we did, it was so funny when we did. Uh, What's new Scooby-Doo? I'd actually pitched a show in between there that um, I was, because uh, I kept saying they wanted to make it more modern and more up to date. So I was like, okay, let's redress the characters. And that's kind of how some of the What's new Scooby-Doo costumes came out of, because we, you know, with the big stripe on Fred's shirt and stuff, that was mine. But when I designed it, I gave Fred like, Fred like a buzz cut and I gave him a soul patch and I put Shaggy in like a stocking cap and shorts and a real baggy shirt and uh, had Velma had like her big sweater, but it was off one, one shoulder. And I don't remember what we did with Daphne. I don't remember. We did, we did quite, quite a few things. But I redesigned those characters that way, and they were just like, well, this is a little too far out. That It doesn't look like them as much as it should. So then I designed another show. Uh, that I pitched and nobody went for it, but they, they did look at it while we were in the what's new Scooby-Doo meeting, which kind of ticked me off a little bit, but it was called son of Scooby-Doo and Scooby had a full grown 
dog's son that was more scared than he was. It was called Scaredy Do, and he was yellow, and he was more of a coward than Scooby was. And I had all the different versions of. Um, I had like uh, it was Fred's brother, and Velma's niece, I think, who was really tuned into the paranormal, so she could tell whenever there was a real ghost present. And it was real ghosts. And we had Shaggy's. Um, they were like real. I don't remember how they were related, but I had like. They were brothers um, that were uh, kind of like, uh, almost like a Jay and Silent Bob looking uh, guys. And I, you know, I gave them all this like ghost catching stuff and, and made it like a real ghost thing. And, you know, everybody's like, well, this is a little too far fed, far away from what we want to do. And I was like, okay. So I wasn't winning on any level. So I just kind of sat back and then they came up with what's new Scooby-Doo. And, and the more I developed it, the more it got back into what it originally was. So it was like, why are we, you know, it was, it was weird. It was like, they were trying to reinvent the wheel without reinventing it. So does that make any sense at all? <laughs> yes, definitely. Okay. I wanted to circle back here and talk about the, uh, how groovy sequence for alien invaders. What was it like to work on that? It was a lot of fun. It was like, I think that was, I did that. I did the lead in to that song where they were sitting at the diner and uh, then I did the song. And then I think the, 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 the uh, end part of it, just a little bit where the back of the diner, but it was a lot of fun. I, the, the, the producer just let me go on it. And I, I went back and looked at a lot of like um, song sequences that Hanna-Barbera had done for, for shows back in the day uh, when they did like Cattanooga Cats. I don't know if you're familiar with that. But there was a show called Kennedy Catch back in like six, what was this? I think it was the same year as Scooby, um, and it was uh, they did all these little song sequences and they had all this like real psychedelic stuff that they were trying to do their version of Yellow Submarine sort of. And I went back and looked at those and just kind of took a, a cue from that, and made it made it that way, you know. And uh, yeah, it was it was a lot of fun doing. I love doing song sequences because it's like it's you know you can just kind of run wild with them that's like when we did all the chases and uh and the scooby shows we did all the you know the musical romps that they they did in the second season of scooby-doo where are you and we just kind of took that and we put those in the dvd too and having you know kind of dipped your toes in so many different roles uh in, within animated projects is there one that you prefer to do or one that's your favorite i enjoyed producing and directing because it was like i it was uh for the most part, it was my vision, you know, that I got, I mean, this is the way that I wanted to do it. And I had a crew that I could count on to like, they knew exactly what I wanted to do. And um, I, I enjoyed producing and directing quite a bit um, to the point where it's like, okay, I've done enough of it. And um, so, yeah, after, after a certain point, it was like, okay, I, I you know, and it's like, why do more? I've already, <laughs> I've already done this show. Or I've already done this kind of thing, so but it, it that was probably my, my highlight. I, I love storyboarding. I use uh, well the way storyboarding used to be done. The way they're doing it now is just like you're almost animating and thing the thing for them because uh, I've done storyboards recently and it's it's a it's a young man's game that's for sure. It's a, it's a whole different mindset because you're just posing everything out a lot more and and just basically laying it out and animating it. So you kind of I mean I was all for. I kind of introduced animatics to Warner Brothers when I was there, and it was like, 
so you could see it before you saw it, uh, before it was sent overseas, and and it was saving on retakes and everything. But now everything is done that way. They do animatics for every cartoon, and um, it was kind of a curse and a blessing because now, like I said, now they expect you to pose everything out a lot more. Back in the day, we could get away with not doing as much. Um, but yeah, no, I, like I said, to answer your question, the original question is like producing and directing was my favorite thing. I love storyboarding. I love designing stuff. Um, there's really not anything about animation that I didn't, I didn't love. I didn't have a good time doing. And what's your favorite thing about working on Scooby-Doo projects specifically? Uh, I, I just, I've always, again, you know, I've, I've had a real attachment to it since I was nine years old. And, uh, it was funny. I was nine years old watching the show. 16 years later, I was working on it. And then I've been working on Scooby for 35 years. So that's, you know, that's my, that's my attachment to, to him. It's, it's just like, uh, you know, it's just something I'm very, I've, I've, I've been attracted to and, and just been real comfortable doing all over the years. And because I was trained by Ewo, um, I'm kind of the guy that they go back to, even when there's projects that people have, there was a couple projects that people was like, we're trying to make this look like Scooby-Doo. So that's why we called you. I'm like, okay, <laughs> you know, from other studios and stuff. So I'm like, well, that's flattering, I guess, because I, you know, supposedly know it. And I wanted to talk about uh, the Scooby-Doo's Ultimate Fans special feature. Uh, how did that come about? <laughs> I had done a bunch of interviews for the company that, um, that had, uh, that put that together. And uh, I had done other, you know, we, we'd done a lot of, um, uh, on, on, the, on the DVDs of like, uh, series compilation, whether it be like uh, McGillagorilla Gorilla or Frankenstein Jr. and the Impossibles or whatever, they would bring me in. They bring me in as a as a uh, uh, a historian or an expert, and I would give because I you know did cartoons and stuff. I they I had an attachment to it, or I grew up on it, so I would talk about that. So whenever they got to the Scooby Doo one, they uh, had heard about my my office and stuff. Cause I had talked to the guy about it. The, the guy who was the, uh, the producer of those segments. And he's like, well, can we come? He said, we're doing this ultimate fan thing. And he said, it sounds like you've got a lot of memorabilia. Can we come to your house and, and film it? I'm like, sure, whatever. I didn't know it was going to turn into a big interview or I was going to be compared to, you know, the other two guys that were on there either. But uh, in fact, and I don't know if, you know, you could put this in or not, Scott Ennis, who was the uh, voice of Scooby-Doo and Shaggy for a while, I was the one who replaced him with Casey Kasem in the original cast, so he wasn't real happy with me after I did that. Um, so there was a little bit of a rivalry there. Like, he's got more Scooby stuff than I do. And even when I was talking about the uh, the Easy Show projector, I just said, give a show projector. And the producer actually cut to Scott Ennis holding up a give a show projector to show that he had it and I didn't have it. So I thought that was kind of funny, but, uh, but, uh, but yeah, so anyway, but I don't know how I got lumped in with those other two guys. I mean, my whole interest was I grew up on the show. I drew the characters as a nine-year-old and I took it into a career. So, you know, that was, I guess that was why they, and I had a lot of stuff. I had a lot of Scooby stuff in my office. So, uh, cause you know, Scooby basically 
like I said in the interview, Scooby paid for my house, you know, <laughs> so I, I owed him a, I owed him a, a, a lot of a debt of gratitude. And do you still have a lot of those uh, Scooby items that were featured? Oh yeah, I, I have. Yeah, it's all still out. So yeah. And when did you start collecting? Well, it was like I said, there there wasn't a whole lot of merchandise when I was a little kid. I mean, other than coloring books and comic books and, and maybe board games and things like that. But as as Scooby got more popular and became more of an evergreen character, they were putting them on everything, you know. Um. So it was real easy to, you know, and then, like I said, I had relatives that would send me items like, here's here's a Scooby-Doo waffle iron, you need this. Or here's a paper towel rack, you need this. You know, it's like, okay, you know, so I would just, <laughs> and my daughters would get stuff. And I'm even giving things to my granddaughter now that I have. That's like, you know, well, I haven't used this in a while. Here's like a little Scooby-Doo, uh, after you get out of the bathtub, that you, a little Scooby-Doo shaped towel thing that you, put over your head with Scooby ears and a nose. I said, she needs this. I don't need to have it hanging up. So, you know, stuff like that. You mentioned the projector. Did you ever find one? Oh yeah. No, I, yeah, I have, I, I found one in the box with all the films and it's never, I don't think it's even been used. I still have it and it's sitting up on my shelf. I'm looking at it right now. Oh, wow. <laughs> and what was your reaction when you did find it? Oh, I was, I was, crazy happy because I, I had it when I was probably, I think it came out probably a couple years after Scooby was on the air. They, they would put one, a new one out every year. So it would be whatever cartoons were, were on. Uh, they would take those. And like, I, I had one with, uh, I think I had one with Frankenstein Jr. Then there was another one with uh, or Frankenstein Jr. and Moby Dick and Mighty Mitor. And then there was the year after that, there was one with Auto Cat and Motor Mouse and Wacky Races and maybe Scooby was on that one, I think. But they, they would give you different films, and you would you would take these films and you'd thread them in uh, to this projector. When I was real little, when I, the very first one I had, I think had Adam Ant and Secret Squirrel. And I remember uh, I got I woke up real early on Christmas morning, like right after my right after Santa had come, and my parents let me open my presents. So they, you know, after I opened my presents, we all went back to bed. I woke up before they did. And I went and got my that projector out and I started trying to thread it and I ripped up about three films before I figured out how to make it work. So I broke it, <laughs> I broke it before I got to look at it. But by the time they came up with the Scooby one, I knew how to do it. And uh, and uh, like I said, I sat there and poured over every frame of that film. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, and do you have a favorite piece that you have or one that's maybe more sentimental than others? Oh yeah, I, and I like I said on the uh, on the interview, it's like I have this presentation board it's it's actually a lithograph made off the original presentation board that it was the 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 uh the picture they used for the ad in the comic book when i when i saw that um back in the day but it was a presentation board that actually sold the show and ewo got it for me uh, he's like uh he he'd done a something for some guy at a gallery back in cincinnati or something and he's like um he said do you want do you want one of those i'm like yeah he said well, i think i can get you one and it's signed by Bill and Joe and Ewo, and it's hanging on my wall. It's like the prominent piece in my in my studio. I have everything kind of surrounding that. So it's the original. Uh, it's it's a print off of the original uh, presentation board that they used to sell the show. That is so amazing. Yeah. 
Um, and what what do you think it is about Scooby Doo that has been able to hold up for over fifty years now? Uh, I think it's it's more of a thing where it teaches. I think uh, I know this is kind of a little bit looking into it more than you need to, but I think it it teaches teaches kids on how to deal with things they're scared of or how to deal with their fears, you know, because they play it out as, as goofy. And then when, when you actually, you know, get to the end of the show, it's never really a monster. It's always somebody, you know, acting like a monster. It's not, you know, or, you know, or doing it for whatever, you know, uh, reason that they have to do it, you know, whether it be smuggling or, you know, or, you know, uh, real estate, you know, uh, problems or something like that, but it, it's always, I think it teaches, I think it's, I think it's that fundamental. I think it's just the, the fact that it teaches kids how to not be scared of something or how to deal with, with things that they're, they're frightened of. And the fact that, you know, the characters are really, really endearing. I mean, they, you know, Scooby's a real lovable characters. Scooby and Shaggy both are like, you know, they're almost the same character really, except, you know, Shaggy talks better than Scooby does. And, uh, you know, you just got, you, you, you know, you've, the, the way that the characters are, you know, act together and that they're, you know, they're, they're really good friends. And uh, I just think that, you know, it's like I said, it's an evergreen thing. It's like, you know, and, and then, you know, people my age grew up with it. They showed it to their kids. Their, they showed it to their kids and so on and so on and so on. So it's like, um, it's, it's, it's got that kind of legacy in it. I think that covers all of the questions that I had written down here for you. Is there anything else that you wanted to add at all? Uh, no, I had a good time. Thank you so much for, for letting me be a part of this. And I'm, I'm uh, real excited to hear it when, it, when, it, when you get it put together. <laughs> Definitely. Um, and just before we end here, do you have any recent projects that you'd like to promote or places where people can maybe find what you're up to? Um. No, not really. <laughs> I'm just, um, basically, I just do a lot of uh, uh, publishing stuff now. I work for, uh, I do a lot of the uh, the artwork for uh, Charles Schultz's studio uh, with the Peanuts characters. I still do Scooby whenever I'm asked to do it. Um, right now, I'm working on some stuff with Tom and Jerry for uh, for Warner Brothers uh, for some books and. Uh, that's about it. It's uh, I don't do as much animation as I used to, um, but uh, but the 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 kids books seem to be working out okay. So I'm I'm pretty content in doing that. Perfect. Well, thanks so much for taking the time out of your day to chat to me, Scott. Well, I appreciate you. Getting up. I'm glad we we met up. There was also a story Scott told me that wasn't prompted by a question, so I'll just tack that one on right here. It's about the origins of the Mystery Incorporated name. Yeah, the fact that the the Scooby gang was called Mystery Incorporated, I'm pretty sure that that came out of a, a publicity blurb from the department where they would they would you know, they'd sit and write, uh, you know, backstories on a lot of the characters. At one point I went, I was going through, cause I, you know, was, I guess kind of, uh, 
in charge of a lot of the classic characters after I got to be design supervisor. So they, you know, they ran a lot of stuff past me and they had things. They had one thing in there about, um, about Adam Ant where they said, Oh, Adam Ant, um, gets his powers when he puts on his helmet and glasses. And I was like, no, that's not Adam Ant at all. That's a character called fearless fly from, Milton the Monster show back in 1960, I think it was 66, 65, somewhere in there. And I'm like, they didn't even, you know, some of them didn't, they, they didn't even know some of their own characters. So I started going through a lot of the publicity blurbs, you know, a lot of the, uh, the stuff that they put out and, you know, kind of correcting stuff. And that's when I ran across the Mystery Inc. thing. It's like, oh, Scooby, Scooby-Doo and his gang, of, you know, and they name off the characters and they said, um, they form Mystery Inc. and then they they go on all these uh, mysteries, you know, to, or they go out to solve mysteries. And I and that was wrong too because for the most part they didn't intentionally go out and solve mysteries. They would run into something. They would be driving to something like a rock concert or a, a barn dance or you know or or just or reading in the paper or something like that. And I mean that was the only time that they really intentionally were a mystery solving group, but uh, they didn't, you know, it wasn't like they were in business to do that. They just, you know, they kind of fell into it. But for some reason, the publicity department decided to, 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 uh, to dub them mystery incorporated, which I, you know, I never understood. And that's where that came from. So it kind of stuck. Um, it's no different than like, I think we were, we were when we were doing Pup Named Scooby Doo. I was talking to the producer about that at, at one point too, and I said, "I said, yeah, well, there's like key things that they always said in every uh, Scooby episode, and and one of them was I would have gotten away with it if it weren't for you meddling kids." And I said, "Nobody's ever really pointed that out or made fun of it." So we made fun of that in Pup Scooby, and that's where that kind of came from, is that we kind of played that up too. Um, and they only said uh, really in the original show they only said it maybe four or five times, you know, I think in, in Scooby-Doo, where are you? They didn't really say it that much, but it was always pointed out like the, that would always be the, the parting quip from the, from the, uh, the bad guy, you know, as they're, as they're hauling him off, you know, uh, I would have gotten away with it if we worked for you meddling kids. That was always something that, uh, that was something that they said in a few episodes, but then, it, and like I said, I thought it was funny that they, you know, that was like kind of a catchphrase too. Just like Fred's catchphrase was, we've got another mystery on our hands, you know, and then we, you know, we even played that up too, you know, and they still play that up to this day, so. And that concludes today's episode. Another huge thank you to Scott Geralds for being so kind and taking the time to chat with me. For more groovy content, be sure to check at UnmaskedSD on Twitter, at UnmaskedSD Podcast on Instagram, or at UnmaskedSDPodcast.com. You can also find the podcast on Facebook under the Unmasked History of Scooby-Doo. If you like this episode and want to hear more, also make sure to check those social media channels or the website. Or you can listen to older episodes wherever you like to get your podcast fix. Thanks for listening, and keep an ear out for the next episode. Scooby-Dooby-Doo!